3: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Alan Rusbridger and I'm the editor of Prospect. Today's special episode is a recording of our recent Voices from Ukraine event where we heard from Ukrainians affected by the war from both inside and outside the country. Speakers included Dr. Alessia Kromedchek a writer and historian who is director of the Ukrainian Institute in London, Sevgil Museva, a Ukrainian editor from Crimea, who's editor-in-chief of the independent online newspaper Ukrainska Pravda, and Andrej Zhupanin, a Ukrainian uh, MP who's been doing some remarkable work bringing much-needed aid into the country. Alicia joined us in person in London while Sevgil and Andrii dialed in from the city of Lviv in the west of Ukraine. That music you just heard was played on the night by Natalia Shuprik, a Ukrainian composer and violinist. To kick things off, I asked Alicia to tell us what it's been like to see the West finally wake up to something that Ukrainians have known about for such a devastatingly long time.
0: Um, it's really important to keep the attention of uh, all of us on Ukraine at the moment, precisely because I think in 2014 that didn't happen. The entire country has been living in a state of war um, for eight years. It's just uh, it was contained uh, to uh, one region of Donbass and also occupation of the entire Crimea, let's not forget that as well and I think that has shaped a lot of what you see in Ukraine at the moment when you look at resilience I can sense that there's a surprise there's admiration but also surprise of how resilient Ukrainians are in the face of this current essentially near imperialist oppression extreme, with extreme brutality coming out of Russia Ukrainians know what Russian occupation is like, they understand what to expect, therefore they are absolutely determined not to let it happen elsewhere in the (coughs) country. And that's the root of that resilience and the root of that device, in my view. So the response of the West, I mean, I, I think it's really important to remember that the reason, one of the reasons why we are what we are, is because in 2014, the response was so weak. Um, you know, there's a sort of a popular joke in Ukraine that it was the response of the West that could be summarized in two words, deep concern, you know, sort of, sort of some sanctions, but not going very far. You know, there's a country that uh, completely disobeys international law, that invades another country, and, and nothing happens. And because nothing really happened, Putin was emboldened to go further and further. And we should really remember that now, because every day, if we don't respond, uh, if we don't respond to Bucha uh, and the and other, and Mariupol, these horrendous war crimes we we're witnessing with, say, immediate automatic oil and gas embargo, right? Then we see Kramatorsk, I'm sure some of you have seen, but, you know, uh, peaceful uh, civilians were bombed, uh, waiting to be evacuated. Mm.
3: Here You would say nobody knows quite how many Ukrainians there are in the, in the UK, but, but 200,000 or more maybe, more, maybe a lot more. Yeah. But, uh, can you describe a little about the experience of the Ukrainian community in, in this country during this war, many of must be... Frantic mm-hmm. with worry about what's going on.
0: Yes, uh, there are different waves to the community. I mean, it uh, is a community, certainly a community now. But if anybody has ever lived uh, away from their country of birth, you will know that it's difficult to talk about again kind one of the community of any kind. There are different waves of migrants of Ukrainian migrants here. Um, a large chunk arrived after the Second World War, and so the second and third generation Ukrainians here. um And then there were people like myself. My family came in the late nineteen nineties. I came like in 2000, so that's the next uh, kind of wave of migrants, and then a lot also came in the last eight years too. And in 2014, we've all had our tensions, let's well, face it. it, you know, different generations, different priorities, even different languages, as it were. We all speak Ukrainian, but it's a different kind of Ukrainian, you know, we can tell each other apart. But in 2014, during the Maidan, and then the beginning of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, we all came together, and we're all united, and we all started to support... Uh, Ukraine as much as we could whether that's supporting the army or civil society in every possible way and, and that has just strengthened and it's a kind of um, small example of what is happening in Ukraine, a society that learned to function under pressure in extreme conditions of crisis uh, and step in where maybe the state isn't able to or you know or, or, or just in addition to what the state is doing already uh, and it's working it's working now
3: I wanted to ask you, Andre, about the West response in the last 47 days, and which she summed up in in, in two words: deep concern. Well, I will also use two words: not enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, because uh, while well, we are receiving a lot of aid, especially if we compare to 2014, and military aid, some. No, know, um, I think also these kind of events that also are helping Ukrainians to be on the world's agenda. But um, we really need weapon. And it's only like last, seven, last maybe few days when some NATO countries said that they will give us new weapon. We were praying to close the sky, but it never happened. So now I think the... The two things that we really need is, uh, is a weapon and maybe some financial assistance because uh, according to the World Bank, our economy this year will shrink by 47% because the economy is not working right now. You can imagine that half of the country is now actually under the attack by uh, the Russian Federation, even in these Western regions like Lviv, Ivanov Ivano-Frankivsk. They are bombarding airports. They are bombarding infrastructure. So we appreciate all the help that the Western countries are doing for us, but um, again, some weapon is necessary because our soldiers—they are ready to die to defend our land, but they need something to fight with. And when Germany is canceling, you know, deliveries of of weapon to Ukraine, it's just—it's it's just speechless, you know. So thanks for the United Kingdom, and that was a very. You know, like strong sign from the Prime Minister Johnson, who came to Kiev uh, just two days ago, and we really appreciate. And uh, this is a very good gesture to the world that Ukraine is on the agenda. But if it's possible, and we know that's possible, and what's our president is doing, he keeps talking to the parliaments around the world. He keeps talking to the uh, people around the world. And he keeps praying for military aid, and this is what we really need in order to fight with russia
3: Andre, as well as being an m p you you were a lawyer Yes, I wonder what 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 you make of the distinctions that Western leaders are using um, in terms of the categories of help or weaponry that they're prepared to use. So that it began with a certain kind of weaponry, and as the war has gone on, I think the most recent thing is is anti ship missiles. We're, we're willing to give for a while. It wasn't it wasn't anti air defence. Now it is. Does this seem like legalistic dancing around the niceties of war, or do you think actually we should we in effect we've gone beyond that?
1: Well, I can agree that from the very first days of the world we see these dancings and uh, that's true that the west sometimes is playing around the world saying that you can only defend and we can only give you some defending equipment then you cannot attack and that that means that we cannot give you any attacking equipment but uh, okay the question is that Kherson, for instance is now sized by the russian federation so it's our land no one says like otherwise maybe except for the for the russia and then we say, okay, we need to take it back. So what are the means for us to take that back? And the only means is to, to, to get some attacking equipment because it's two, two different sorts of equipment. So we see the evolution of the West in terms of um, how they talk to Ukraine. So many countries and even Germany said that they thought that Ukraine will just you know, fall down within three days after the war started. They were very surprised how we started fighting with the Russian army. And the Russian army is the second largest army in, in the world. So, And there we see the evolution of, of, the, of the minds of the Western politicians who are now ready to provide our, like, us more equipment. But uh, we need to start moving from talks to actions. And that's, uh, that's really necessary. Because now we see that Russian troops, they are changing their directions. So they told us on the peace talks that they will give up, you know, their attempts to attack Kiev because they are so, you know, peace, peacemakers. But that's not true. They just failed, you know, to take Kiev, Sumy, and Chernihiv. And they are now regrouping their troops to attack on Kharkiv, Donbass and uh, to take uh, over Mariupol. And that means that we need uh, urgently we need more equipment, we need more supplies, and we need uh, European countries to understand that this is the threat to the whole Europe, not just Ukraine. So in this situation, Ukraine is fighting, you know, not for the land, but for something that is more important than just the piece of land, we are fighting for the principles, and after the Second World War, the European order was based on the principles, and now Russia says that those principles, they mean nothing. So, and uh, that is for the Europe and for the Western countries to, you know, to uh, protect those principles. And that means to help Ukraine.
3: um, yes,
2: Mm -hmm.
3: tell tell us about what the last 47 days have been like for you trying to edit what is now one of the major news outlets in Ukraine. And I know you've got hundreds of millions of readers now coming to you and it's available in in English. Mm -hmm and Ukraine, but it must, be, it must have been horrendously complex. To, to give us some idea of what it's like bringing news to the public. Um,
2: thank you. Thank you. I want to start with uh, one memory w- connected with you. It was about um, kind of same discussion uh, at uh, Oxford with Margaret Macmillan, famous historian, and she also presented her book uh, the war which ended with a peace and, and uh, one hour before i met with another one historian brilliant historian uh, from ukraine uh, was vertsak uh, who said uh, we made an interview with him so who said that it's not war uh, between russia and war for ukraine uh, and war with ukraine it's war for the future of europe and i'm working all the time all these 47 days uh, with uh, Total understanding of it that we are in a very important point of history, not only for our country, not only for um, uh, all kind of post-Soviet countries that are the same and post-Soviet uh, um, landscape, but uh, for Europe and for the world too. Because I totally agree with uh, Lesa. She said that war started eighty years ago, and I faced with this war. Uh, the occupation of Crimea. I'm originally from Crimea, and I'm Crimean Tatar, and I uh, don't understand what occupation by Russian means eight years ago and even earlier. Uh, so, and uh, media. Uh, I also want to say that it's not war, or not only war for the future of European Union of, of the world, but also war between truth and propaganda, and uh, um, Russian Russian propaganda kills. And uh, we were trying to say that for all whole world uh, last eight years, but unfortunately, uh, Russia propaganda still works in different countries and works to the end. Uh, like only after what we saw in Ukraine, what we saw after uh, Bucha, um, European countries started to block all these channels, all these Russia TV, Russia Today channels in different countries. Uh, they blocked in. Uh, they also deported some uh, pro- propaganda guys from uh, their countries, and uh, I think it's po- it's important sign but unfortunately uh, yes we don't understand uh, where the truths are, but at the same time, we uh, need to understand that more than uh, one hundred forty people forty million people uh, in russia unfortunately. I don't understand it, and they are still in this uh, in this atmosphere, and they still uh, don't know truth what's going on, and they still believe uh, that Butcher is kind of fake story, they still believe in kind of pure uh, laboratories uh, in a different parts of our countries, and all these uh, propaganda narratives. Uh, and I think that it's not the result of uh, last forty seven days unfortunately it's a result of last ten uh years and it's my personal disappointment as a uh, as a journalist as a media uh as a media representative what how we work actually yes uh it's 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 uh, uh, we never um, uh face something like that because it's uh um after Butcher, we don't understand that it's a genocide and it's, uh, it, it, it's very hard to cover and uh, to, uh, uh, to cover a genocide of uh, in real time. Uh, of course, our journalists went to Bucha, went to Morodanko, went uh, to different destroyed by Russian uh, troops' uh, cities, and they saw and they faced, but they met with these people, with the victims, with uh, people who were damaged by uh, Russian occupiers. And it's 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 incredibly difficult even to understand the or the pain, not to feel it, uh, even understand that pain. And I think that it's important point. Um, yes.
3: To so feel um, for for people in the audience here, yeah, I'm just going to show a, an, an interview I did with <laughs> with a lovely <laughs> illustration. But but I try to tell there that the story of Yukanska Pravda. Um, mm-hmm. Which, um, which has had to deal with a lot of, of, of terrible things during the, the course of you know, two, two journalists associated with the magazine have been assassinated. Uh, and uh, so life has never been easy for, for this news organisation. But, yes, yes. but you had tremendous support from the public. And I think when we spoke you talked about how um, yeah. you are getting multiple tips from the public, but in the end, yeah. your, your journalism stands or falls by, by, by just dealing with the facts and, 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 and people believing you. Um, but it must be difficult, because I know when, when we spoke at that point, it was impossible for you to be in Kiev, And I, I think probably a lot of your journalists, so you, were, you were scattered all over the country, some, some actually mm-hmm. leaving the country. Tell, tell us about the logistical difficulties of, of just getting the facts right and getting them uh, out.
2: Yes, I want to mention that Ukrainska Prada was, found, was founded 22 years ago uh, in situation of total propaganda, uh, no, total, total censorship by, by the state. And it was actually the first independent media. And unfortunately, our founder was killed uh, in six months after and it uh, also became one, the, one of the most important political cases at the beginning of uh, 2000. And actually, I uh, really believe, and uh, everybody in Ukraine know that, that uh, it changed Ukrainian media landscape uh, and helped us also not to be as a Russian media. So it's, uh, it's very important uh, to know. Uh, so, and... Um, Now, uh, of course, we scatter in different parts of the countries uh, because of, uh, actually, it was our plan. Uh, So because one week before war, I understood that unfortunately, unfortunately, it will happen. Something will happen. I didn't know what will happen, but I didn't understand that. uh, It will be escalation of this conflict and we uh, relocated our offices in different places, because I don't understand that we will be the main target by Russian troops by Russian army, Uh, not the main but very important target, and uh, they will try to to control media as well. Uh, actually, what they did in first day of war, when they bombed, uh, for example, TV station uh, in uh, Kiev. Uh, also, they, they were trying to dedose all uh, big medias in the country, and I. Uh, that's why we changed our location just to make a possible everything possible to uh, to continue our job and to continue our work in uh, new circumstances. It helped us. Uh, what I want to say, our plan to work, it helped us in two or three days uh, where p- when people were traveling, when people were trying to remove from uh, kind of be relocated from Kiev or other different regions, it helped us. So part uh, of our media organization still in Kiev, covering uh, all. All these brutal events, part in Chernigy, for example. Also, we had uh, one reporter here. And part in Western countries, just because if we will have a problem with connection with internet, we will possibly do our, our job. So, uh, incredible uh, story is uh, for checking, of course. It's, uh, it's hard, it's difficult, uh, but we uh, do our best uh, to follow all, all stories, uh, to find all people uh Because unfortunately uh, it's possible that during this time we uh, faced with a lot of uh, fake disinformation uh, from different sides and of course uh, Russia also uh, trying to to, to, to influence uh, informational Ukrainian information field with uh, different sources uh, one, uh, one, but one. we had this experience mm-hmm. and what, one mm-hmm. of your mm -hmm.
3: One of your most remarkable early stories was that you had a leak of the names of every single Russian soldier in in Ukraine and you published it. So that was a list of more than a hundred thousand names. And uh, that was, I think an act of of courage and of great Mm. um, uh, editorial skill in, in getting the names. Um, What what was the reaction to that story in Russia? Because I I think for a lot of Russian people, this was the first time that they could confirm that their relatives were actually serving in Ukraine.
2: Uh, Yes, we received more than one and a half million views for this uh, page. And... uh, search part of it uh, were from Russia. Uh, Ukrainska Pravda blocked in uh, Russia. It was blocked before. It was blocked during occupation of Crimea because uh, we were covering um, um, all criminal uh, criminal cases against Crimean Tatars, and they blocked us as, as extremist organization. Uh, so, but Russians use uh, VPN and still read our news, still uh, used our information, consumer our information. That's why we have. A Russian version we have our telegram channel in Russian and uh, yes uh, this list of people um, helped for a lot of natives for a lot of relatives uh, from these guys from Russian army. Do
3: mm-hmm. you have any sense of how many Russians are able to read you using VPNs or telegrams? Uh,
2: uh yes uh, around around 300 thousand every day or 400 thousand people every day it depends uh, day on day but uh, russia uh, in first place uh, after the us and after uh, poland actually so it's first place first is ukraine second uh, is uh, us the us um, i mean diaspora uh, uses also, the diaspora uses also this, uh, Ukraine is the main source of information. Third place is Poland and fourth place is Russia and it means a lot that people uh, use VPN just to still consume our news, to read and to know a real situation.
3: And, Andre perhaps I can ask you um, and maybe Alicia I, you might have your opinions on this. Sometimes we encourage ourselves in the West to think that if only the Russian people could all read Yevgeny kind of proud and, and could read the truth, that uh, that this would change things. But I, I read other people saying we we kid ourselves that, that actually uh, this is this is not going to make a difference.
1: Well, I think that everyone hopes, you know, that there is some sort of maybe majority of people that could change things in Russia uh, if they knew the truth. But the thing is that in this in this world, it's not like the world after the or during the Second World War when the information was actually restricted, and if you switched off the radio, then no one knows so no one knows you know what is happening. In this world, it's just you and your whether you would like to know the truth or not, you know. And the thing is that uh, according to the recent polls, just maybe made two weeks ago after the Fuske invasion was made to Ukraine. Uh, 80% of Russians they, they keep supporting Putin and this is almost the highest uh, ranking uh, for the last uh, several years so part of them they are really happy that uh, Russia is uh, at war with Ukraine part of them uh, they agree they don't know the truth but the thing is that they don't wish to know the truth You know, and again in this world it's very easy to, to to get all the facts on your hands and to decide uh what is true and not uh people in russia who actually um who live in big cities were more who are richer than uh, people in the, in some other regions of the russia they are deciding to move abroad. maybe you've heard about i t specialists that are now running from Russia in just thousands you know so they are seeking a better place to live i wouldn't uh, you know i i wouldn't tolerate the idea that well, it's just, you know, a few army guys in Russia and Putin who are killing Ukrainians and all Russians are good Russians. Um, Well, it's the sad uh, joke in Ukraine. We are saying that a good Russian uh, is a dead Russian. Uh, It's, you know, very hard to say like that, but uh, in any way, um, a a country with 130 million people uh, were one man. Decides, uh, and then one man gets support from these 130 million people, it's just their own mistake. And that's all their own, uh, you know, they uh, voted for him on the elections. Uh, they supported him when they invaded Georgia in 2008. They supported him when uh, he annexed Crimea in 2014, when he invaded Ukraine in 2014. So it's it's not. Uh, again, I would not tolerate this idea that you know, uh, everyone just uh, in the shadow and we should bring a light to them and we should hope for the Russians uh, who will get this light and they, they will rise up and they will you know, change the power in the country. Uh, it just, uh, they, I think they will understand only the language of force, so the language of, uh, of sanctions the language of their real ordinary life, you know, getting worse and worse every day and also a very important thing is, you know, to um, uh, cancel the operation of large Western companies in Russia and that's very ridiculous when some French companies are keep operating in Russia saying that, you know, we take care of some ordinary people, we make bread for them, we provide them hygiene. It's, uh, I I well, I don't think that's the way how it should work in this civilized war- world when uh, you say that you are for the principles, you are for the Western idea of democracy and, uh, you know, and live in peace. And then you support financially, actually, because you pay taxes there. You support financially guys who just uh, uh, bombard uh, theater in Mariupol, uh, who kill civilians in the Kramators and on the railway station and who kill civilians in hundreds in Irpin and uh, in Bucha.
3: Lucia, what do you make of this, the battle of information and, yeah. and how it seemed, Russia seems impervious to it?
0: Right. Well, I think ignorance is a choice, uh, wherever it is or throughout the world. And it's true that you know, we can't just um, excuse uh, the Russians for not knowing the truth as well, if they don't know the truth because they watch TV uh, and TV is controlled by the state. Uh, there's access. If there's access to Ukrainska branda, then there's access to English language sources as well. There's plenty of opportunities to find out the truth. Uh, should they wish to do so, one chooses not to do it. One chooses to either believe what the state says or to say, "Oh, I don't know. It's too complex. It's too complicated. Too many stories are out there. Mm, I'm just, a, you know, I'm just a small individual. I can't make a difference. It's all too. Everybody's lying, you know. And that is what I think Russia has achieved." all over the world to put us in a state with with so much disinformation, to put us in a position where we say it's too complicated for me to work out, I am not going to bother. And that takes me to outside of Russia, to us here again. First of all, there's an enormous Russian community outside of Russia, uh, here in London. I mean, it's called London Grad for a reason. Um, I haven't seen an awful lot of Russians protesting. And when I have seen them, it's usually joining the protests organized by Ukrainians. Where are they? Where are their voices? Why aren't they protesting? Why are they organizing protests themselves? And I have actually, I've already heard of instances of assaults on Ukrainians by ordinary Russians. My my friend was assaulted on the tube the other day by just Russian? because she by by a, a woman who spoke in Russian to her and, and assaulted her verbally and actually physically as well. Because she was wearing Ukrainian colours and she was going to a protest and, and you could see a placard saying something Russia. It's just the only the word Russia was there. So you know, they can self organize outside of Russia as well and and, pre- and pressure the you know at, at least I don't know deliver messages to their population back home. The other thing I wanted to bring. Can I just ask you yeah.
3: why? Why? Why do you think that's true? So why, why, are why, more, the organi- why are they? Why are they organizing? It would be a
0: very good <laughs> idea to ask the Russians that question. Rather than me, and I don't think it's my responsibility to organize them. Um, we, we've not excluded them from the protests that have been organized by Ukrainians. But I wanted to also but, but,
3: yeah. just to follow up. I mean, that's a fair answer. But but you're a historian, yeah. and and. I think what you you and Andre are saying is that there's a, there's a kind of national pathology operating here. And after the Second World War, there were big question marks about how much the Germans knew what was going on. So... It,
0: it turned out that
3: they did. It turns out they didn't. You're, you're saying either they've chosen, I think you're both saying, either they've chosen not to know, or they know, and it makes no difference. So as, or as they a, know and they support it. As a historian, yeah. what do you make of that?
0: Well, I... I... So I've been asked so many times what the difference between Ukraine and Russia is which by British and international journalists. And I grew very tired of that question to be honest, because often, you know, uh, nobody would ask me what the difference between Ireland and England is, right? I mean, it's just poor case to ask a question like that, or between Austria and Germany, for that matter. But it's okay to ask what the difference between Ukraine and Russia is which speaks to our ignorance here, I think. Um, so if I have to answer that question, I will answer that question in the following way. The difference is the Ukrainians have made their voice heard every time they didn't like something. Uh, they tried to do it in the Soviet Union as well. I and mean, It's been repressed as much as possible, but they kept trying. Then in the 90s, we had huge protests. We had what is known as the Revolution on the Granite in 1990 to ensure that the Soviet Union collapses, essentially, and Ukraine becomes independence. Miner's strike continued throughout the 90s. Worker's strike continued throughout the 90s. In 2004, we have Orange Revolution. In 2014, we have the Maidan Revolution. We take to the streets, we make our voice heard. We pay a really high price for it. High price for it. Lots of people died on the Maidan, were killed by riot police, absolutely peaceful protesters. But we achieved something. We ousted the president who wanted to turn Ukraine into a police state like Russia is. Right. So we make our voices heard. We, we we take that stance and we take that risk and that is why we are prepared to defend it now because that we're, we're defending the future that we ourselves are building and for some reason that doesn't happen in Russia. It's not like there wasn't oppression. It's not like Ukrainians were not sent to jail by our authoritarian leaders. It's not like we were not getting beaten up by by riot police. All of that has happened in Ukraine as well but we kept going and we are protecting that future which we envision and are building ourselves whereas I think a lot of what, what we see in Russia, the society seems to want to live in a made-up past, past not real past, but made up by their president, uh, and not even not even understand that they are being deprived of even a chance to create a vision of the future.
3: I think one of the things that's been so, so shocking, I mean, everything about this war is shocking, but the, the sheer barbarity of, of what's been happening, that both Sir and Andre have referred to, Again, as as somebody who who has been frustrated by the West failing to pay attention, is is this something that uh, it's understandable that we're shocked by, or if we've been paying attention since 2014, would would we not be shocked? Uh,
0: Yes, I I think that less so. So, uh, Sipir mentioned uh, the importance of journalism and reporting from Ukraine, and um, I think we should really appreciate that right now, right, because we do get a small army of reporters Went to Ukraine in December or so, in January, uh, when the troops were, uh, you know, um, amassing on the on Ukrainian border. International journalists, and now they're reporting from Ukraine, um, and the, of course they rely on Ukrainian fixers. Let's not forget that as well. You know, they're relying on local knowledge in order to report accurately. It did not happen in 2014. In 2014, a lot of reporters uh, here in Britain, for sure, were reporting from Moscow. Uh, not from Kyiv. So they were were depriving themselves of of access to local knowledge, knowledge, and and they were depriving Ukraine of agency in that conversation, right? And recently I've heard a lot, you know, expressions of regret saying no conversation about Ukraine without Ukraine. And yet, so often, uh, panels continue to have either no Ukraine experts, or they definitely don't have in-house Ukraine experts. Because for a long time, for some reason, we thought that we don't need an in-house Ukraine expert. We need some kind of regional expert, and regional usually means Russian. Yeah. Right? If we had paid attention, if we had known what was happening, that say, I don't know, a, a gallery in Donetsk was turned into a concentration camp, if we had listened to those people who survived the, the ordeals in those concentration camps, so where well, again, just like in the Soviet times, just like yeah. under Stalin, then yes, I think we would be less shocked, for yeah. sure.
3: If you've uh, enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber, go and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect Magazine or go to subscription.prospectmagazine, all one word, code.uk to subscribe. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week.